Welcome to the podcast of Small Differences with Ian and Otis. Hey, Otis. Hey, Ian. Welcome back to my garage. Um, welcome back to the standing, you know, recording in front of this gigantic dollhouse that my children have. <laughs> yes, it is a toy that only a grandparent could love. And yes, it was a gift from my, uh, my parents to my children. Um, and they, the children do love it. Um, yes, so welcome back, everyone, to the podcast of Small Differences. Uh, glad to have you here. Yeah, episode number two. Yep. Um, we really want to take some time to acknowledge like the feedback we got on episode one. You actually listened to it. We're, <laughs> we're surprised and delighted. Um, we, you know, we got some feedback that we're going to cover in this early part. I think I want to thank like Mike Punzelin. Uh, John Taylor uh, and Matt Channon for providing uh, like good feedback on both content and audio. Oh, and Kevin Davis, who probably had the most detailed fa- uh, feedback. Um, thank you, Kevin. Very graphic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and uh, I will say that um, uh, when I ballparked us at at, at five listeners, uh, I had clearly underestimated the size of Otis's network. Um, so. There's probably five from my side then. Um, maybe I don't. I don't know. Like I, you know, I wasn't sure who was like whether anyone was going to listen to it either. But I, you know, there's a lot of you out there who at least gave it one chance. Um, so you know, in the spirit of that, we want to like get all of you who are willing to give us a, a second listen as well and say um, what we what we're kind of intending the audience to be like what we think our audience is like you never know your audience will surprise yeah, you yeah yeah so that was like one one core piece of feedback we got is is maybe say what this is going to be about yeah <laughs> so we're going to do that now <laughs> yeah so i think our intention is that this is for data like this podcast is going to be for data scientists and people who are data science adjacent like maybe people who work with a data scientists once a week or as the main part of their job. Um, We want to, like, for the data scientists in their early career, we think we can provide you with, like, some insight into, like, what it takes, like, what the emotional component of the job is, as well as, like, some, some, like, key insights that are helpful, like, technical insights, not super complex ones, Mm because most of the super complex ones aren't that great. And it's kind of hard to describe that over the air. Yeah, no, we're not (laughs) going to be explaining detailed concepts to you. I think we both listen to, like, podcasts that do that. I don't like listening to those podcasts. Mm. If I need a detailed concept explained to me, I'm going to yeah. read about it yeah. because then I can look at the equations. That said, we will be putting out show notes yes. <laughs> that uh, that uh, that that gives references to all of the concepts that uh, that we do talk about, so that you can look them up later and hopefully use them at some point. Mm-hmm. Yes, show show notes was the like I think every single person. Uh, mentioned that we should have show notes. Yeah. We should have show notes. Um, so, good. Thank you for that feedback. Um, let's see. And then for data science adjacent people, I think if you're interested in, like, what's going on in the people that you're working with head, like, what they're, like, where they could be coming from as a background, and I, I really think that this might be useful for that group of people because Ian and I are perhaps not representative samples, but like we do represent like two of the different types of people you see running around with that job title. And I know it's a huge problem for engineers and for operations people and finance people where you see the job title data scientist and you don't know when you open up that box, whether it's going to be an Otis or an Ian or some other thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and so, like, if we kind of think about this thematically, the thing that we're really going for uh, is we're hoping that whether you are early career, mid-career, or or a person who has to work with data scientists, uh, that we can give you some tools to be able to do your job better. Okay, so in that light, I think today I want to talk, do something that I don't think is going to be like the prototypical uh, type of episode that we'll do. I want to talk about a paper. Okay. <laughs> Um, in, in particular, I think it's like, it, it's a good paper, like it's about stuff that is relevant to lots of different types of data science, um, uh, job titles and it's pretty accessible. And it also happens to be written by one of my former coworkers who I, uh, co-authored by one of my former coworkers who I respect a lot, uh, Leo Pakelis. Um, so it's about p-hacking and we can, we will link to it in the show notes. I think, uh, if nothing else, like if nothing else, like it's worthwhile to read the abstract. Um, and we can, we can kind of define what p-hacking is, um, so that like people can follow along with this discussion. Yeah. So the, the title of the paper is p-hacking and false discovery in AB testing. Um, and they actually give a pretty robust definition uh, of p-hacking here, uh, which is uh, continuously monitoring uh, the experiment and stopping it once the observed p-value falls below a threshold, uh, testing many hypotheses but reporting only those that fall below the significance threshold, and excluding participants or transforming the data to get a p-value below the threshold. Um, which uh, I, I think that pretty much covers like this sort of behavior. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of people that would add using like a lower, like a, a higher alpha level or lower um, um, confidence level, uh, which basically that is like if you want your p value to go point below 0.05 before you declare that the the test is significant. That's the standard. Some people, when they decide to use a point, point 0.1 um, alpha level, and then I think if you asked some of the like some of the data scientists out there, they would describe that as p hacking all on its own, just yeah. like manipulating your yeah. uh, your your alpha level or your confidence level yeah. uh, in order to like p- get things to pass. Which can, if you don't, I think if you don't specify your alpha level ahead of time, then that can certainly qualify. Yeah. Yeah, so to uh, before we get into the meat of this, I think it's probably at least somewhat important to acknowledge like how much jargon is like kind of like sitting inside this because I'll I'll, I'll tell you as a as a physicist walking in to my first data science job and and having and and like starting to interact with say bio biostatisticians uh, and they were talking about p-values and confidence intervals, and like that stuff just made no sense to me, right? Because <laughs> confidence intervals, seriously? Well, yeah. it's, uh, well, uh, as in like ninety-five percent confidence intervals. Like I'd only ever heard that referred to as error bars, uh, okay. <laughs> right? And so I was like, what is a confidence interval? Uh, especially because like from a technical perspective, it's not quite used in the same way mm-hmm. uh, because like. <clears throat> so, like, generally, like, uh, working with those folks, they like to specify their uh, their confidence intervals to sort of represent the result, 
Whereas like when you're a physicist, your result is the point estimate uh-huh. and you're using the intervals to basically say, well, like how far off could it could it have been? Uh-huh. And so like it's it's just a, a it's a small twist, but it's one of those things that like that like makes the interaction have a little bit more friction uh, than maybe it should. Yes. Um, that 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 said like you know so i was used to this world where like you're running an experiment you get a point estimate that is your impact mm-hmm. and then you stick some error bars around that and from that you you essentially like make a determination of like do i think this thing was real or not uh and you calculate effectively what is a p value mm-hmm. but if you don't get a p value you know lower than like 10 to the minus 3 or 10 to the minus 4, like, nobody is going to believe that your experimental result is real. Did, did you just say 10 to the minus... Okay, anyway. Yeah, social scientists, we do not have that standard. Sorry. We report yeah. no things. Yeah. There well, are no results. Uh, well, I mean, it turns out that in the real world, like, that's just not... How, sure, like, if I'm measuring the mass of the W boson, mm-hmm. like, yeah, there, there's there's ways of, of, like, driving it down to that, to that level... Uh, of, of of confidence, but real world experiments don't work that way. Right. Uh, and so, like you, human behavior doesn't, yeah. doesn't have enough deterministic elements in it that that you get yeah uh, that level of comp- like you get that level of precision. Yeah. And so then, like the thing that I ended up like really needing to understand coming into this field is basically like why it was that you know people seem to look at the you know. 0.05 as like the number that they felt like they could oh, work with, right? Do you, do you know Why the they answer set to a threshold? Do you literally know the answer I mean, to this I question? I assume it was something Fisher did at you some are, point in time. I, be, I believe you are totally correct. I actually yeah. don't remember which which one it was, and I can even never really yeah. remember. Like uh, Fisher and Pearson, one of them was just like alpha levels are useless. Don't use alpha levels, and one of them are like one of them was. Ah, 0.05 is good enough. Yeah. Use that. Um, there, there. It's weird. We've kind of in like we. If you look into the intellectual history, we've synthesized two people that didn't <laughs> agree with each other yeah. on how to use the, these frameworks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll we'll link the definitions to like all of these concepts so that you can look them up later if you're interested. If you're interested, uh, the 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 important thing is. Uh, why am I mentioning like this, uh, you know, like this sort of physicist point of view versus versus the other one? It's really because in real world experiments, like in businesses, you just never, ever, ever get the level of 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 like accuracy that you can get out of out of like a controlled experiment on the physical world. Yeah. And so like practically, like if you sort of think about oh i want to publish a paper or or like this knowledge belongs out there in the world like you have to choose a threshold mm-hmm. where like you're going to say like the, over here it matters and over here it maybe doesn't matter or whatever it is but like that threshold is a thing <laughs> it, it it's one of the things um let's let's also pause to acknowledge like i think ab testing is one of the most useful things that like businesses do yeah. that web businesses do i think it can be hugely like it can be transformative um it's like the only way to get some of the like get at some of the core questions of your business sometimes yeah um 
It also is crazy backwards logic that is intuitive to no one, including its <laughs> practitioners. And the alpha level in particular, like the 0.05 alpha level is decided by custom, not by reason. Yeah. And that, that frustrates me a lot because uh, your risk preferences don't have to be this, like are not like homogenous across yeah. industries, across experiments within companies. 0.05 is good for some experiments and bad like you're effectively saying like i'm gonna be i'm gonna think that i have an effect here one time out of 20 when by randomness alone i will be wrong one time out of 20 and that that risk preference is appropriate sometimes and other times you have a thing where you are testing where the risk is actually pretty moderate and you like like have being wrong that you have an effect from randomness alone, one time out of ten is okay. Um, you have to like, you know, modify that with the fact that like the by randomness alone qualifier yeah. is kind of a big deal, and there's lots of stuff that aren't necessarily random going into your test. Too. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, I, I I've seen this happen a lot where like folks come in with their academic training and they're like, well, we need to get to the right answer, mm-hmm. and the right answer means we've run the experiment and there's a p-value less than 0.05. And that is, I mean, I I was never a social scientist, so I don't know exactly how that affects the dynamics of you being able to publish a paper. But like in a business, like that is most assuredly the wrong way to look at it. Uh, And the reason is, is, you know, as sort of you just said, like there's, there's the risk preferences piece of it, which is like, how much of a problem am, am I going to cause if I'm wrong? Uh, and, and the reason that becomes important is because it affects how many experiments you can actually run. And so in many cases, it might be better to run four times as many experiments and be wrong one out of every 10 or even two out of every 10, as opposed to like being able to run way fewer and uh, and and being wrong, you know, one out of every fifty, mm-hmm. um, and so that's like one issue. And then the second issue is is like it doesn't account for cost and upside, right? That like if something say has super minimal cost, but like possibly very high upside, like you might want to deploy that thing, even if it turns out that like oh, it's uh, you know we only got to a p value of 0.15 right or even 0.3 right because you're like well it's costless to deploy it if it turns out that we're on the right side of the coin here like it could be incredibly valuable for 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 uh for the business itself and and something like that might you might not even really care to roll that out as an experiment yeah that's that is certainly also possible risk is like an important part of that like patreon has like before i even got there had like a like kind of a heuristic around like is it do we need precision is there risk? Yeah. And if it doesn't meet one of those two criteria, uh, if not both, then we don't generally run an experiment. I think that's pretty. Yeah. That's pretty solid. Uh, sometimes you want to be able to measure something, even if you don't necessarily need precision too. Um, so I think you know I don't want people to get the impression that we're like pro p hacking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not, and I think you can put simple things in place like the. Basically, the finding of this paper is that p-hacking is pervasive in industry. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, when you set a threshold on something, 
like it should not be a surprise <laughs> that people will hack towards that threshold. This is, yes, right? this, is, like, this you, is one of the central <laughs> insights of economics. Yeah, you if are. You, if you put discontinuities in the rules, you will find discontinuities into behavior. Yeah, you you are <laughs> tapping into human incentives. Yes. Right. So so like to me when I like look at this stuff, like the first thing that comes to my mind is like you as the practitioner, like be aware of what your incentives actually are and like look at your intent right because if your intent is do the right thing for the business like in most cases it's probably not even going to matter what the p-value is in the first place right Mm -hmm. uh and but but if you're being like well i'm running an experiment i need to get to you know to p-value 0.05 like you should probably dig dig a little deep there and like figure out why you're thinking that yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it, in my experience, a lot of the times it kind of comes down to like, well, that's when your executives are going to be happy and you're going to get the call out in the team meeting and feel great about yourself. <laughs> yeah, that, there's um, there's a lot of institutional. I think if you're new to the job, you're probably just getting the feel for it. But there's there's an institutional pressure to ship things. Yeah, I think. If you're and to and to be right and to be right and to and to feel like people feel good when they ship a product and when yeah. it, it wins the experiment, um, they want to have like they get attached to the thing that they built. Yeah, um, you fall in love with designs before before you see that they do anything. All of those things like put more like there's more pressure to ship yeah. than to reject yeah. the the hypothesis that the thing yeah. you built is uh having an effect so well and to be clear as well like like shipping and shipping successful products like it matters Mm -hmm. right like at the end of the day like when you evaluate your impact over a year or two like you kind of want to have shipped some successful stuff but it doesn't all have to come in one experiment like it, it will all come in one experiment when you look back on it but the more you can run, the higher the probability is that you ship something with impact. I, I, I think that that's like a, we, we should, like it's a topic we should come back to, but like how to kind of avoid the situation where you go an entire quarter or an entire, um, an entire like half a year without shipping something. Yeah. And I think that that's usually by like reducing your experiments down to like more incremental things and doing fewer like we're going to just do the entire, we're going to redo the entire page. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that, that will result in fewer of those situations. Yeah. You want tight, to, you, tight hypotheses. Yeah. Basically. You, so just like, again, I think like it's important to like prevent yourself from, from P hacking from the point of view of it does cost you something like yeah. you have, like you think you learn things when you didn't right that's the first one yeah like i think that's the most important one and that's the most neglected one yeah um you ship things that don't have an impact and then they're out there until they do there's very i think there's very like you don't generally get the directionally opposite thing yeah from p hacking like this is why like that's why i'm like i don't i'm not as like oh p hacking is the end of the world it's because i don't think there's a lot of instances where it's like you ship something that actually hurt the business yeah because you you p hacked it like that yeah that's that's rare yeah i mean when that happens there's usually something a lot deeper underneath 
that that has that has caused it. You, the, there's there's other analyses you failed to do yeah. that are more impactful than well, the the p like the, you using an extra variable to like get the p value below the threshold. Well, or or the 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 system in which you're operating is just a lot more complex than you thought it was. Yeah. Uh, and like I I've definitely seen that happen where it's like you ship something metrics run backwards. And you basically realize, like there are, there's like a big piece of hidden complexity that nobody knew about until you ship that experiment. Yeah. That experiment's incredibly valuable, but you know it's not a p hacking problem, right? Like, like there's no incentives issue there. It's it, it's really like then you have actually learned something. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think I think the monetary or bottom line impact from p hacking is probably not yeah. large. I think. Uh, in the more like the more frequently like the the higher your shipping cadence the the less that impact is too like if you ship something that didn't really have an impact then like basically it's time until you like make another improvement that like makes that one obsolete yeah is like, like the time that you're below what you would have been in a world where you didn't like you didn't ship that thing. Yeah, that's that's I think how 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 I would look at it too. Like like one of the one of the interesting things about this paper was they they tried to cost out what uh, like what the impact of this was. Kudos to them for trying. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> I don't think they quite captured it because I think that learning aspect is yeah. the most important. But um, you know, it's important to try to formalize these types of things. Yeah, and like, and like, I do think that it's really hard because, like, part of what this comes down to is the opportunity cost of like doing the thing that wasn't that useful versus anything else that you could have been doing. But you don't know if that stuff is useful either. Mm -hmm. And then there's also, well, like, how long does this run for before you go back and touch that feature again? I mean, that also depends on the size of your team and your product development cadence and, like, all that stuff. I mean, eventually somebody is going to look at the top-line metrics of the business. Like, they're always going to be trying to make the revenue go up. Mm -hmm. And so, they're like, eventually someone's going to look there and basically be like, okay, well, this thing doesn't, you know, maybe if we made another improvement in this feature, it would it would do X. Uh -huh. And so, you know, I, I, I feel like what that kind of comes back to is that in... in in a professional setting, like p hacking is just is not fatal. No, uh, it it's like maybe annoying and wasteful, but like it's definitely not fatal. And uh, you know, if if you're a data scientist at a company where you feel like the politics dictate that you do some p hacking in order to have an A/B testing system, I know which <laughs> choice. I like I I don't I I I understand making that choice. Yeah. Um, I also think that if you can play that into the long run, you're doing the more disciplined thing. Uh, that's better. Um, yeah. Let's see. And so, just just as a, you know, if you want to stay out of this zone, I would say, like the zone where you're doing, like there's, like there's, p hacking, and then there's like setting up experiments that accurately reflect the risks that you're taking. Yeah. Doing that involves. Setting like understanding how long the test should run for and letting it run that long, unless you're just literally destroying the entire company's <laughs> metrics yeah. um, by running the test. Um, but being disciplined about the runtime on your tests is like the first and most 
like that's the most obvious one again that's one where i feel like patreon had a, a good system in place before i even got there so doing your power tests good good practice yeah, good, good practice, step on yeah. the way to to not 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 manipulating your results um having clear decision rules about when to ship and when not again they don't have to be super conservative yeah i just think they have to be clear yeah um you don't decide them when you uh, like when you get the results, you decide them before you get the results. And I also think if you're going to like evaluate key strata, use that to learn like key, like groups that are subject to the experiment, mm -hmm. use it to learn about what happened. Don't use that as like, Oh, we're going to ship this because new users like it. If yeah. that's the case, just test it on new users, guys. Like yeah. don't, don't go, don't, don't go on uh, bear patrols uh, to find the strata that the test looked for, worked for, and then uh, only ship it to that strata like post hoc. I don't think that's a, that's like, uh, that's generally not going to work. Yeah, there's so there's one addition that I would that I would make to that, and this is probably uh, most relevant for people coming from a social science background, uh, which is. Uh, uh, which is look not just at the p-value, but also at at uh, uh, at the impact and the error bars around the impact, because at the end of the day, like the it is it, it is that number, so that multiplier on whatever metric you know you think is supposed to move, that is like the thing that matters, uh, and that can help also deconvolve like whether you should be shipping an experiment that has you know that has a p-value of 0.1 or whether you shouldn't be shipping one that has a p-value of 0.0000001 because like yes i can tell the difference between these two but there's you know the business like but like the business the, not going to care yeah, when you multiply that metric times the other business metrics it doesn't make yeah. an impact oh I, I got you on this one there's an actual like there are lots of different t-tests there's only one that in my experience gives you that right credit like that right output for that which is the welch's t which mm -hmm. is gives you the like it uh, gives you like the confidence interval around the difference between two means um and that's it's like a default in r but it's like a real like if you're using one of the python systems you have to do some digging before you have to um, before you can find that one, I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, I also like the one other field that the paper brought up for me is I've always been the type of data scientist who is secretly a Bayesian at heart, just not at methodology. <laughs> um, like I learned my first version of statistics so long ago that there really wasn't an option to like do the Bayesian version of things. And so I'm still more comfortable with the frequentist p-value hypothesis, reject the null hypothesis or Pearson framework and I've never been like comfortable just oh we're going to redesign everything in Bayes uh, because everyone else learns that that framework too and even though it's probably inferior it people understand how it works and I'll take the system that people understand well, over I mean, the perfect one understand they know how to turn the crank and they have some heuristics around right, right. how it works understand how it works i don't think anyone understands how frequent statistics work <laughs> um and this this paper does make me rethink that a little bit because it looks like the bayesian version of hypothesis testing is like you have a prior belief and then you change something and then you modify 
the change by your prior. And then you, that gives you this modified point estimate for what the new thing is. And then you take a look at that and you say like, well, I think this is probably an improvement. I'm going to ship that. Yeah. When people are p-hacking, a lot of times they're taking this other frequentist framework, which basically tells you it's, look, man, like the effect size is either a zero <laughs> or, or it's this. And they're like, but we think it's probably in the middle of those two things, so we're gonna ship it, right? Yeah. And that's like that's like that strikes at me because like that says that if you ran this through a Bayesian framework, then businesses would actually be this, yeah. you'd be getting what you want out think, of your A/B yeah. testing system instead of having to manipulate this other system yeah. that doesn't really do that thing for yeah. you. It's a it's a Bayesian world out there, man. I, I mean, I really do think that like, should we ship this piece of software versus yeah. not ship this piece of software fits nicer into that yeah. framework of I have prior beliefs and now I've got to modify my prior beliefs as opposed to, I mean, I don't really like the underlying popper thing is like. I really believe this thing, so I'm going to do my utmost to prove the opposite of that. <laughs> and then if I don't prove the opposite of that, then I have validated my belief. Yeah. And that's a kind of crazy way to do business. Yeah. Like, that, like I, we, I think we should admit that on its face, that's not how a business yeah. should be thinking about whether to ship or not ship. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of one of those things where, like, I feel like, again, you know, if you're coming in as an academic you essentially like need to start to figure out that like business is not science. Yes. Like there's scientific method you want to apply to learn stuff, but like that like Bayesian framework actually fits a lot better into like what you're trying to do because like then you can look at it and basically say okay, like if there is, you know, a 70% probability that this thing is right and a 30% probability that it's wrong, do I ship that, right? Then that's just a calculation that you run it that that like you run that you essentially run through to the top line metrics to basically say, okay, well if I'm if I'm right, times 0.7. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I'm wrong, times 0.3. Sum it up, and you can basically see, okay, is that better than what I'm doing today or not? Mm -hmm. And then you put in some monitoring to essentially like like see if over time you can kind of adjust those more. <laughs> Right. Because like at some point, like as you're running your system, you might get to like 50 50, in which case, like maybe the calculus changes. But uh, yeah, I will say yeah. that like that, that is like not intuitive to me as someone who's never trained in Bayesian statistics. It's yeah. like you like belief is not a discrete like point in time when you can change your beliefs and when you should update your priors like that's never made yeah. sense to me well, that's just i would the thing love that for our audience to <laughs> to uh to give us some some tips on books that i could read where i could understand how the damn patients <laughs> deal with that shit um but anyway i think yeah, if it were intuitive like if everyone intuitively knew how to calculate bayesian credi credible intervals like if that was a thing that was taught in stats 101 then this would be an easy decision, right? Yeah. For like to implement that type of testing, um, and that would probably result in. I don't think it would necessarily even like have different decisions, but like it would make the scientists part, like the scientist part of data scientists, like an easier thing to reconcile with yeah. what you're doing. I I think there's a chance it would result in faster decisions, or like more, or 
it's uh, it's more, less obvious that you need that like yeah. that like you have to run it for two weeks otherwise yeah. it's not valid rule when yeah. you're using the Bayesian credible yeah. intervals because those those are yeah or more more confident decisions mm-hmm. right because you could you, 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 at that point you fully specified your space let me let me let me throw a third version of it out it's like you confident like you've made decisions where you've articulated your uncertainty better yes. Um, and particularly the uncertainty yeah. you care about. Well, and the impact of that uncertainty, yes. right? Like the big difference to me between the Bayesian approach and the frequentist approach is I can take the results out of the Bayesian approach and and like map them up to the thing I actually care about. So it's not local to just the experiment, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's like, oh, I ran this experiment, I got a p-value of 0.05, like <clears throat> my business stakeholder is going to ask me, like, okay, well, what is, what, why does that matter, <laughs> right? If it was point one, like, does it change the revenue metric that I care about? If it was like point oh one, whereas, whereas, like, on the Bayesian side, like, because I'm getting the uncertainty out of it, like, I actually have a way to do that convolution and say, okay, here's what the experiment says. Mm-hmm. Basically, says revenue should go up by. You know, by five percent, uh, with uh, you know, with an uncertainty level of you know two and a half percent around that or whatever it is. I should I should also add like sometimes you do when you're doing risk evaluation experiments that framework makes so much more sense, yeah. right? Like the hey, we have to be extra sure that we didn't hurt X because we did Y. And then you set X up as like you set a little like the null hypothesis up of we didn't hurt X, and then you test the frequentist like reject the null hypothesis framework against that. You're gonna mostly find that you didn't hurt X because that's what it's set up to find. Yeah. Whereas like the in that case like the like the the fact that the Bayesian framework is more sensitive yeah. to small changes and tells you more often like what you what you believe. Like the the probability that you you hurt X instead of the um, uh, like the p value in that in that, yeah. that circumstance is practically uninterpretable. <laughs> yeah, we should we should uh, we should probably do another one of these uh, on tail risk. So Ian, you do more machine learning than me, which I believe technically everyone does more <laughs> machine learning than me, unless you really want to count just running a regression as machine learning, which for some reason people yeah, want some, to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think that this is like the sort of paper that like actually applies to people who are doing that mostly as their job? Yeah, so I, I would actually argue that uh, in terms of the impact on a business, the equivalent of p-hacking in the machine learning space is worse than like than like than than doing it with like A/B testing and experiments. Is is that because? Um, like when you the equivalent of p hacking in machine learning as i understand it would be like you manipulate things so that your model looks significant and then you test it out of sample and it's like not actually predicting better yeah so <laughs> this is actually a place where like uh, i think the uh, the the kind of web-based machine learning world probably has a lot to learn from the finance-based machine learning world. Oh man, hot because, fire, 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 yeah, hot take. Uh, because the, uh, the, the finance people actually like, like know this 
uh, almost almost viscerally. But the the equivalent of p hacking for for machine learning isn't like oh well I manipulate the model and it doesn't do well on, on like out of sample testing. Mm-hmm. It's essentially where I get so focused on optimizing towards one metric. So like the uh, 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 the the area under the ROC curve like tends to be like the first one that anyone w- will uh, will go for, but but pick any metric, right? So like area under the precision recall curve, whatever it is, and so so like you start to focus on like really heavily optimizing towards that 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 one metric. Hold on a second. Yeah. What is an area under the ROC curve? In case someone um, hasn't hasn't encountered that yet. Yeah. So we will we will link to that. But basically, um, uh, uh, there is a uh, there, there's a curve and signal processing called the uh, receiver operator uh, characteristic, uh, and I the exact definition of what the axes are is now escaping me because um, it's like something and one minus something else. But but. Uh, the the idea is essentially that uh, if you have a model that's generating a probability, uh, uh, so uh, um, you, there's like some threshold around which you're gonna set like a uh, a true or false. So so I predict that they have the outcome versus if I don't have the outcome. Like most machine learning models are classification models, so that's the thing that they do, mm-hmm. um, and. That threshold is a is a hyperparameter. It's a choice that like you get to make, uh, and so the idea being that like uh, if I sweep through that threshold, so uh, it can take on any value bet- between zero and one, uh, I'm going to get uh, a characteristic uh, like a, a, a curve that essentially represents how well my model performs under like almost kind of like arbitrary circumstances where above above the line is false like falsely identifying things and yeah. below the line is correctly yeah and things. and so the way you can kind of think about this is is like right or the opposite of that uh, yeah like uh, well it depends on what you're classifying gotcha. um but like uh you can kind of think about this like like as I sweep through this it, if I like set my threshold at zero that basically says I'm predicting everyone is 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 going to have the outcome balance problems like that actually like that performance level is not terrible but it's not it's, practical it's, it's either not, it's not clear that you're doing yeah. something and we've we've both seen that in in practice we've i've seen that in academic papers where they're just like this is a great model yeah and it's an imbalanced sample and you're just like well like you know it'd be an even better model is predicting that no one has the thing <laughs> that you're, you're looking for yeah yeah so so the idea is basically that like uh, a really, really great model is less sensitive to where you set that that threshold, uh, and there's a cur- like, and and we'll link to this so you can look it up. But there's kind of a there's a shape to that curve that you can see that will tell you like is this model any good, uh, and the area under that curve tends to be like is is one of the measures of goodness for that. Uh, and so like 1.0 is a perfect model and 0.5 is basically I'm making random coin flips Mm -hmm. so like a good classifier roughly speaking will end up somewhere in the 0.7 range if like you can get into 0.8 you're doing really really well Uh, we found some interesting results where for certain classes of problems you can't get better than 0.85 which uh, maybe we'll talk about that in a 
in, mm-hmm. in the future episodes. So but, but you're it's saying like perfect is not always possible. But you're saying there's lots of situations where you can walk away with a great ROC. Like you can walk away with that 0.85. Yeah. Or you've moved a model from 0.8 to 0.85. And for what you're using the model for, maybe you haven't actually improved it. You haven't improved the user experience yeah. of the people who are you're predicting things. You haven't like improved the ability for a healthcare company to so, predict these outcomes ahead of time. So there's an even deeper problem. Like you may not have even improved the model itself. Mm. You might have made it worse. And here's why. <laughs> so it depends on so let's say that I had model X that I fit on on some data set somewhere that I've collected over the last five years. And Model X produces uh, 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 an ROC metric of 0.8, so it is like an awesome model. Um, Now, I would obviously like to improve Model X, right? So uh, I'm gonna start going through another machine learning development process, right? I'm gonna throw new algorithms at it, I'm gonna tune the hyperparameters. The one thing I didn't do is I didn't collect any more data. Mm. So I'm literally using the exact same data that I used when I developed Model X in the first place. And then I get to Model Y. And Model Y has an ROC of 0.85. And I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> right? But now think about that process. I didn't collect any more data. So there's literally no new information sitting inside the, uh, sitting inside the data set that I, I then then was available to to model X. Mm-hmm. So what is the probability that 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 I've actually improved the model versus like I've just done a better job of fitting on some of the noise that's specific to to that data set. So if you this is like I now see where you're saying like where finance people are kind of ahead of the rest of us on these because this is this is the macroeconomics prediction debate of the 1970s in a nutshell where like the more like you could throw lots of different variables at these like at trying to predict what GDP was going to be next year and you'd get great looking models but like the predictive value of them was nothing and just lag of GDP yeah. was the thing that like predicted GDP. Well, and, and, and here's the thing, like it's the same as p-hacking because if model Y, like as I'm fitting that, mm-hmm. if that doesn't come out with an ROC of at least 0.8, I'm not publishing it, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm only gonna ship it if the ROC comes out higher, mm-hmm. right? And so, so essentially like really the only way that I can solve this problem is by collecting more data, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so if you talk to like uh, the like algo traders, right? So like the heavy finance guys who actually like use models to try to make money, um, they will basically tell you that every single time you do model development and you get a good result, you have overfit mm-hmm. for sure. And so they've put in like, you know, they've basically put these processes in place to prevent them from losing huge, huge amounts of money when that overfit happens. But that's why, like for them, for instance, is not enough to do like the test train split like they will do the test train split. Uh, and build their models, then they'll do a very significant back test. And then uh, um, 
Um, and then they'll do the prospective validation as well. So they'll ship it into their production systems, but they won't actually trade on it until like they understand the characteristics of sort of how that model was overfit relative to the model that that they had before. So uh, the point that I kind of wanted to make is essentially that uh, that that uh, we'll call it the sibling of uh, of p-hacking in the machine learning space is overfitting. Mm -hmm. And the impact of overfitting can actually be really, really high, uh, much, much higher than p-hacking if like you're running your whole business off of decisions made by a machine learning Which, model. Uh, there are a fair number of companies out there doing that. Yeah. So, you know, I would say if you're working in this space, like this is a thing that you have to be cognizant of. Um, if there's a practical thing that, that I can kind of leave you with here, it's do as much testing as you possibly can. Uh, and, and, and this is a place as well where like you have to do prospective testing or experimentation to like know uh, this, this new model that I got that looks better than the old one, like is it actually better or, uh, uh, or, or, or did I just overfit? The uniting theme is like statistics and machine learning both have lots of little outputs that help you understand whether or not like something passes a threshold, whether it meets some criteria. It's very useful for applying that structure to your thinking. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that structure is only part of your process and you have to apply lots of like external context to the structure in order to whether it's whether you're evaluating what the predictive effects of a model are going to be for your actual business or whether you're like understanding the, the effect of an a b test uh, experiment result on your decision making process you have to like take that context apply it to the structure and then understand whether the like whether the structure is being helpful right now or not yeah um so there's no getting out like there's no getting out of the human judgment no. aspect <laughs> of any of these problems and i think there's um more art than is universally acknowledged to understanding whether or not feature x is going whether it's a literal feature in terms of like a piece of software or like a feature as in like a column yeah <laughs> that you've added is going to make a difference on something yeah yeah i mean the way that i kind of think about it is like whenever you're looking at really anything you're going to do start with the impact you hope to make on the business and work backwards from there mm -hmm. uh and and if you can keep that in focus it will also uh, so 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 number one, if if your early career, that's actually like how you how you uh, uh, how you build career capital and leverage is like showing that you can consistently do the right thing for the business. Um, but it it certainly will uh, uh, will will help you significantly uh, in terms of making decisions that like have the effects that you want. As opposed to just like, you know, to just like proving a model, yeah, or like writing a piece of docu of like documentation or like or like a report that nobody ever reads. All right, that sounds like uh, like I think defining those metrics and understanding like how you understand what impact you're making on a business is tricky and yeah. probably a great topic for the next episode that we'll yeah. do. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been the podcast of Small Differences. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at 
Old Jacket, O-L-D-J-A-C-K-E-T. Um, yeah, and you can find me there as well uh, at Ian Blue one uh, I-A-N-B-L-U, and the number one. Um, you can also send us feedback at uh, feed.back. I, gave, I had to, I told Google that like <laughs> the first name, last name of one of our users was feed, and the last name was back. So feed.back at smalldiffcast.com. Um, Otis, Otis is great at technology, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I am literally the low bar for technical prowess of any every team I am on. Uh, <laughs> all right. Thanks again for joining us. It's been lovely talking to you. All right. Thanks, folks.